0: Taylor Williams, and welcome to Motion Picture Commentary. On this episode, we will be talking about historical accuracy in film. And once again, we'll be joined by David Birnbaum. And before we dive into the episode's topic, uh, I'd like to remind our listeners to check for the accompanying article that's been posted on the BTI Community Facebook page, as it's going to provide a little bit more context to the discussion. So. With this episode, uh, we're going to look at historical accuracy, mainly from the perspective of Bohemian Rhapsody, which uh, just came out last year. Uh, So, David, have you seen Bohemian Rhapsody?
1: Yep. I I watched it.
0: And what did you think about it?
1: I thought it was pretty good uh, overall. Like, I wasn't in love with it. I just thought it was like a decent movie. I enjoyed it. and yeah, I didn't really know much about Queen at all, um, and so I found it kind of fascinating to to learn about. I just yeah, so it was fine. I didn't love it. I didn't hate it.
0: And that seems to be uh, a sort. It seems to be somewhat of a polarizing film. With uh, you know, like Bohemian Rhapsody has kind of become this sort of like cult classic song.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, uh, there's a lot of people who like Queen or who got into Queen specifically for it for that song yeah and for them this this movie is like a, a masterpiece to them now I'm mm-hmm. on your side of the story here and that I found the film entertaining I enjoyed it like I I've listened I've been listening to Queen since I was like 13 years old so
1: yeah
0: um, I kind of like grew up listening to rock and stuff like that so I've, you know, had a fairly, you know, at least more of a a baseline knowledge of Queen as a whole uh, mm. going into the film, yep. but um, that being said, like, I haven't really listened to rock too much in the last, you know, better part of this decade, I've kind of shifted more into metal, but uh, I still had, you know, that baseline knowledge of Queen and, and, and an appreciation for the music that they've done. Yeah. And uh, and of course Freddie Mercury's vocal uh, singing ability, um, but this film is obviously not the most historically accurate, and that's something that's come up uh, throughout the awards season,
1: mm-hmm.
0: especially as it continued to pile up uh, wins, and it's it just it's one of those things that. Um, that I was seeing out of my writing colleagues and other people within the sort of, what we call the film Twitter uh, community of, of people who are supposed to be sort of tuned into to film that it shouldn't be winning awards because it's not historically accurate while they're also pushing other historical dramas to the forefront mm-hmm. uh, of those award shows when they're not historically accurate either.
1: Yeah. And, and uh, it doesn't really make sense to me why historical accuracy matters in many of the categories, right? If, if not all of them, right? It, I, I really just don't understand, you know, if we're talking about the art of filmmaking, story is one small piece. And even within that, it can be a very good story, if, even if it's adapted from reality.
0: Exactly. So I think if you talk to most filmmakers, the one thing that they want Out of any movie is to have a good story, Mm -hmm. because without a good story, you don't have a movie.
1: Yeah.
0: But the issue with handling historical dramas is the fact
1: that historic history
0: is not necessarily the most interesting thing,
1: Mm -hmm. especially not when you're trying to package it in a very specific package.
0: Exactly. So when you only have like two hours to tell the story of an of a person's entire life, yeah there's only so many things you can include and that means you have to change timelines. Like in this, in the specific case of Freddie Mercury, they, uh, his, his partner conf- said that he was diagnosed with AIDS in 1987. Mm-hmm. And then he didn't, but Freddie Mercury didn't, uh, publicly announce it until like just over a day before he died in 1991. Uh, but in the film, they moved that timeline up to 1985 for Live Aid
1: mm-hmm.
0: so that he had the diagnosis beforehand. And then it elevates uh, the performance. It makes it a lot more compelling. It adds some drama. Like, you have a singer putting on pretty much his best performance of his life while having dealing with uh, throat issues from the disease he's He was battling that, so it just kind of elevated the the sort of drama element to the story in that uh, in that specific ending scene.
1: Yeah, and it makes me think of the scene where he's like trying to get the band to agree to do it, right? Like I didn't know it wasn't true, but it was like so poignant that like he really just needed this, right? He needed to be able to do this because he knew it was going to be one of his last. last option, performances. last performances, yeah. but that just wasn't true, but it, it was very compelling in the movie.
0: Exactly. And so that's, that's what are the things that uh, people need to understand. And I wish um, that there was sort of a, they had, they were forced to put an asterisk on the, based on a true story to say, you know, underneath like in fine print, but a little bigger than fine print that some events have either been fabricated or altered.
1: But that's why they say based on a true story, right? They don't say this is a true story, right?
0: True, but the issue is, is that when people see based on a true story, they don't connect the two. Yeah. And there's far too many people who understand that based on a true story means it's not gonna be entirely accurate, but then they're still complaining that it's not entirely accurate. Yeah, so I, mean, I think they just need to have that base statement that's saying that it's all done specifically for drama. Because what's a, if you, you can't really call a film a historical drama if there's no drama in the story.
1: Yeah, and I guess it depends on who they want to make the movie for, right? The average right. moviegoer is not someone who's well-versed in the history of Freddie Mercury and Queen, probably. Right, but they want right. to capture that. Right, they want to capture more than just Queen fans. Um, yeah, well, and they, they want to
0: capture the essence of Queen and the essence of Freddie Mercury, and and I think ultimately the fact that it's just based on a true story and they're um, they're altering some things. It's not it shouldn't be considered as a big of a deal when either the person that the story is about has been involved in some way mm-hmm. as a creative consultant or if they if they're no longer you know alive that people who knew them were at least involved yeah and that's that's part of the and that's where like Roger Taylor and Brian May and Graham Kings involvement in Bohemian Rhapsody it, it kind of tells you that the, the surviving members of, of Queen have signed off on
1: this, on this depiction. Mm-hmm. That it's true enough to the image of the band and of Freddie.
0: Yeah. And so I think in, in that respect, the film achieved what its goal was. Mm-hmm. And that was to capture that essence.
1: Yeah. And I mean, the... People who are mad, like, it's not a documentary, right? If they want to learn about the story of the band and the truth, why do you even need to pay people millions of dollars to pretend it, right? Like, there are other sources of the truth. I don't see why they would assume a medium that is made for, you know, interpretive art would need to have that truth. To it and that's
0: that, that's a good point um, but I think it's just also has to do with the fact that you know documentaries can be kind of boring
1: yeah but again and, I think that's that you hit the nail on the head right there right because they're yeah they're forced to be just fully true and tell more of the whole story they can get kind of dull because no one's life is exciting forever but when you're yeah. watching a movie you want it to be, engaging not necessarily exciting but fully engaging and and documentaries yeah. have a struggle with that because most things aren't that engaging all the time
0: and and I mean that's not to say that documentaries can't be engaging because mm-hmm. I mean, there's certainly a lot of great documentaries out there but then that that what that comes down to is filmmaking choices yeah and then we come right back to the whole story thing and and then you have to look at, okay, does, what, are the, what are the filmmakers' biases? If any, is, are they presenting a fully accurate portrayal? Or is it their own biased opinion?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Or their own biased perspective on the story they're trying to tell? So even with documentaries, there's going to be some issues when it comes yeah. to the story that they're telling. So I think no matter what, with these historical-type films there's always going to be this, uh, this problem of it being not a hundred percent factual. And if you look at say any of the historical dramas that, that were nominated this year, or at least generated award season buzz, I mean, you go through, you know, green book, uh, which had, it's had the whole controversy surrounding it Mm -hmm. about its historical accuracy and its representation of, of Don Shirley. Um, And then you go to, Bohemian Rhapsody, uh, and Black Klansman. Like, Black Klansman uh, had Boots Riley, the writer and director of Sorry to Bother You, he wrote an entire essay uh, showing it, at uh, about criticizing it, criticizing the film for some of its historical inaccuracies. Mm -hmm. So while people might have preferred that film as a... Uh, you know, from a, an actual film standpoint, which it was, you know, a really great film. Uh, to argue that it was more deserving of Bohemian Rhapsody because it because Bohemian Rhapsody wasn't historically accurate is it's silly. It's foolish.
1: Yeah. Well, and I also think it's just an impossible thing to measure. To like, to what standard is something historically accurate or not? Whose perspective on the history, right? Um, like unless you're talking about something that is, you know, recorded in the history books and that, so, I mean, the only benefit of that is that we don't have many perspectives of something that happened 500 years ago. We only have the winning perspective largely. Um, so we can agree on, we all kind of have one perspective, even if it's not necessarily unflawed, but you know, in anything that is in living memory, Historically accurate, based on what standard, right? Exactly. It's it's very difficult. Yeah, and it
0: stretches like to any sort of adaptation of any story. I mean, mm. if you look at, like, uh, talk to most anybody who likes to read. Yeah. And you know, one of their favorite books has been adapted into a movie, and they go see it, and they go, oh, well, that they changed that, they changed this, they changed yeah. that, so the book was better, right?
1: But, yeah, it's um, and, just such a different medium.
0: Exactly, and I, I'm, you know, like the great thing about you know these film ab- film adaptations of books and stuff is that it can bring you into these these stories and and reading. Like I didn't I didn't read any of the Lord of the Rings stuff until after I'd already seen uh, the uh, the Peter Jackson films.
1: Yeah,
0: and they're not entirely, you know, page for. Page for page adaptations, but they're still widely viewed as some of the best fantasy films of all time, if not the best of all time. Yeah. Um, but it's just there's certain elements of Tolkien's story that don't translate from the page to the screen, at least not in in the context of our our time. Like our our time, people aren't going to go watch some you know hobbits and elves singing all the time. They yeah. want to see it as more of an action fantasy drama situation where you know the stakes are elevated and it's not just singing
1: yeah and that, um, that that's very even noticeable with like the extended cuts of the Lord of the Rings films for example right mm-hmm. um, there I forget if it's the second or the third one maybe it's the second one where there's the entire like additional you know 40 minutes just around the trees making the, the ends making their decisions and stuff and it's like, yeah, yeah, that was
0: the second one. Yeah.
1: And it's like, I, maybe the way it was described and read and the way it interlaced with the rest of the story was interesting, but it was definitely kind of dull, uh, in the movie to just kind of watch them live and deliberate and, well, that was, and stuff.
0: That was, uh, that was also changed from what was actually in the, in the, no, in, in the novel, mm-hmm. um, and that and the change was specifically to add tension and dra- and drama to the story because then you know we're looking at these creatures that have the, the opportunity to completely shift the tide for for the for Rohan <laughs> at the Battle of Helms deep that are only coming at the very last moment yeah and so that you know that was done a bit for comic relief because there's the whole we it's nighttime already and they just finished saying hello uh, sort of idea yeah uh, so that you know that's a little you know just sort of uh, takes some seriousness out of the situation mm-hmm. uh, but it also helped aids in creating that tension and know you know are these creatures going to help our heroes
1: yeah and so I, it's all done
0: it's all done in service of the story
1: yeah and I think that's what's so important to realize like even adapting one fictional narrative into another like through a different medium is is very difficult and you want to make sure it translates and so i would think it's even harder to do that from real life right to to really package because to package nicely um you know someone's existence um isn't easy and like (laughs) yeah
0: exactly and it's it's then you're also having to go through and talk to people and try to understand what their recollections of conversations they've had from 40 years ago are yeah and that's a difficult thing to do whereas I have this book on dialogue from a or from a decorated screenwriting and a, and, a, and a writing teacher Robert McKee who um, in the very first like the first example is he goes through and and takes the exact same idea of uh, words and demonstrates how many different ways you can use it, and for what different mediums it works best to do it that way.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And like, if you know, if it's a book, you can do it from inside the protagonist's head, because now yeah. you don't you don't need somebody else to do it. To you don't need that other character to sort of bounce it, bounce the uh, the, the teachings or whatever it is. They're they're kind of yeah whatever thought process they're going through. You don't need somebody else to bounce it off of because you're reading it. You yeah. can you're, you're reading it as the character goes through it in the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But as soon as you translate to that that to the page, just having a voiceover or something, it's it's it it slows everything down. It jolts you out of the story. You're not yeah. engaged anymore. So having that as a two character or whatever, two three character conversation where the where somebody challenges his main the the protagonist's ideas or ideals, and as, the, as so that he can go through that entire thought process and learn something and change from that, mm-hmm. that works better on the screen. But it does, then you know, if you go on onto the stage for a theater play, the monologue might work as well. So yeah. it's
1: and that's it interesting. It depends on the medium. I hadn't thought of that, and I mean you know. For, for things based on real life, you can't really get across, yeah, what their thought process was, right? You have to, for a movie based on real life, you have to kind of assume they had all of these, they made all of these decisions and came to these conclusions around other people, with other people, which is just probably yeah. not the case for a lot of people, right? You Exactly. You, so you have to
0: manufacture situations in which these, these decisions are like, these... And like, changes that the character goes through uh, happened in, yeah,
1: and likely like some of the, the most important ones, right? You're so you're creating, you're creating false stories around some of potentially the most life changing moments of someone's life because that's the only way to even get the story across in the medium.
0: Exactly. So, um,
1: I I did want to ask in your article you start by saying when there's a movie based on real life you tend to go before the movie and research and, and to know what actually happened and i uh, well
0: I, I do that after as well after uh, as well yeah so if I, if i don't ha- sometimes if i go in and i don't have apps i have absolutely no idea of of what the story is i like to get at least some idea of what the story is telling because then i at least have some expectation of what to, of what i'm going to see mm-hmm. uh, because you know trailers nowadays. You know they're all meant to get you into the seat. Yeah, but they're not necessarily the most you know accurate representation of what this movie's going to be about. Mm-hmm. Um, so oftentimes, you know, I'll I'll read up on it if I found the trailer interesting, and I'm like, okay, I want to see this movie. So I'll just go and get a basic idea of what you know what this story is about. Do you, you do that for
1: it? like? Random movies too, or only for ones based on real life?
0: Uh, I do it with most movies. To be okay, honest yeah. with you, like, uh, I've, I, I, uh, I don't care at all about spoilers. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and so, um, I understand why some people aren't, you know, don't want to hear them.
1: Yeah.
0: And I'm totally, uh, res- you know, I, I respect that. But for me, um, I used to kind of be like, "Oh, I don't want to. I don't want to hear anything about it and whatever." But then, you know, I found out a, a big spoiler for a movie. I don't even remember what it was before going to see it, and then I saw it, and, and I, I kind of just stopped caring because yeah. it didn't affect me. It it didn't like ruin the, uh, it didn't ruin, the the scene that it happened in. Yeah, like so,
1: uh, think- and then. I think the so, at, people, at some point, I started
0: actively even seeking them out.
1: Yeah. I think the reason people dislike spoilers is because it removes some of the surface-level enjoyment. Like, it's the, the easiest enjoyment to derive from a movie or a show is a surprise. Like, oh, what? Right? Yeah, exactly. And, and so, it, it detracts from the most surface-level enjoyment. But if you're trying to really fully appreciate a movie, I don't think, you know one any one plot point should no matter how surprising it is, if 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 losing that makes you not enjoy the movie, then it probably wasn't a good movie.
0: Yeah, exactly. And that's that kind of segues into what I was just what I was gonna say is that um the Guardians of the Galaxy director James Dunn, he tweeted out at one point that if a spoiler is enough to ruin a movie for you, then it wasn't a good movie in the first place. Yeah. And that one, I mean, he only tweeted that out like, well, before he, you know, has got off social media mm-hmm. uh, after the whole firing thing, which I think we can cover in another episode. But yeah. uh, he, uh, this was, you know, fairly recently uh, in terms of his social media use. And I had stopped caring about spoilers, I don't know, probably four or five years ago. Um, but it, that, it was that exact sort of idea that it just resonated with me because that's how I felt about it. Because, like, if you look at, you know, let's just point to The Force Awakens, the seven Star Wars movie that came out in 2015. I found out that Han Solo was going to die in it, or at least that uh, there was a possibility that he would die about six or seven months before I saw the movie. Mm-hmm. And it still didn't take away any of the the moment of that scene on on the bridge with him and his son like that's that scene still held all kinds of weight for me um yeah and but then conversely a friend of mine from school had that moment spoiled for him five minutes before he got went into the theater (laughs) to see the movie well when the other group of people who are, who are just, just finished their screen and came out and were talking about it. Yeah. So then he found out like literally as he was going in to see the movie that Han Solo dies.
1: Yeah.
0: And see that's that's the kind of thing that where, you know, spoilers are kind of a I don't in, I don't want to see it then. Yeah. But and then there's also, you know, like people complain about spoilers for everything. Like there's just it's just, everything is a spoiler to these people. And I see it more and more with, uh, I, saw, I started seeing it more and more as I started uh, writing for CBR.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: it's like, you, you write anything, any story, like, oh, uh, the new Guardians of the Galaxy ship in Infinity War is called the Benatar, which is not even something that's vi- like said in the film itself you write an article about that and people are like, oh, freaking spoilers, man. Thanks for ruining it.
1: <laughs> it's like, you know, it's, it's just... Do people... It's, th- I, so do these people think that there are spoilers in based on true life movies?
0: I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> I guess I kind of got off on a tangent there, yeah. but the yeah, idea of no being, but... <laughs> being like, I read about all of... These movies that I go yeah. see ahead of time because I don't care that uh st- I or most of the time I do this, but because I don't really care if I know ahead of time what's going to happen. Because if it's a well-made movie, it's still going to make me connect and relate, and yeah. it's still going to re- that scene is still going to resonate with me regardless.
1: And I guess it actually I I because I, I I when I first read the article, I was kind of like confused by that because. You know, I just kind of go in and I watch it and and sometimes if I'm very peaked, then I'll research it after the fact. But normally I just kind of go appreciate it and that's it. But I, I see now that there is actually quite a significant ability to appreciate it more if you kind of know more context and know like especially for a based on on real life movie. But generally as well, if you kind of know the context that exists around it. Um, you can kind of actually fall into the world more, um, yeah. which I had not thought of.
0: Yeah, well, and you can kind of just appreciate why the changes were made and, and all of that. Just so you can kind of see that you know what this part of their of his history was kind of really friggin' boring. Yeah. So I'm glad they made this change. Or like with the Mike Myers character in Bohemian Rhapsody, um, it's not a re- it, you know is based on one specific like the, the character himself was uh, like an amalgamation of a whole bunch of them and the name was uh, uh, a, a callback to a specific producer but yeah. um, you know that was all done in the service of not having a quick cut montage of like eight different producers saying you know but this is a bad idea because yeah. then they could extend it out and as an audience because we know how big of a hit Bohemian Rhapsody became we could look at the look at that scene from basically a a hilarious point of view, because here we have someone who's so against the idea of a six minute single on, on going on the radio. Yeah. And that, because we're, you know, from a totally different vantage point, we know how big the song is going to be. Yeah, it looks stupid to us, and it's funny how how against it he was. Mm-hmm. But then you have to understand that in the early days of radio, singles were three minutes. Yeah, you'd, you'd release a three minute song because the more the more different the more songs an hour uh, a radio station could play, the better for them. Yeah, and so if everybody started releasing six-minute singles then the stations aren't putting up as many new songs mm-hmm. so there was just this big blowback about it but you know that was a good that was a you know a fairly decent scene in the in the film and one that you know i enjoyed probably outside of the live aid performance it was probably one of the best scenes in the film
1: yeah and that actually brings in another important point about it generally is when someone's making a film based on real life, we have such a different context than the people in the story in real life at the time, right? And so they also have to factor that in. They can't just make it verbatim true to life because we, I mean, even when you think of, I don't know, the, the scientific changes, right? Like we just know things differently. And so some things could be ridiculous to us, but they need to still... It can't be humorous that they think the world is flat in this historical drama, right they ha or whatever, yeah. so like they have to they have to modify it' what is it and like the act of observance changes what's going on right so yeah, well and that's the uh, black Klansman is a is a perfect example of that
0: because it's one that you know was done in a very different time frame, but it was done in almost the voice of the generation that we're in now, mm-hmm. And and it was just done so skillfully that it, uh, it really worked and then there was the the sort of montage at the end that sort of tied everything up into uh, up to the Charleston uh, stuff and uh, I think that's something that we have to at least consider when we when we do these types of films is like uh, because and or even if you're looking at older films um, from different time frames like, and one of the, or even TV series, I mean, there was uh, something that showed up uh, from H3H3 Productions on YouTube that I saw a little while ago, um, and they're, they're sort of, you know, a, a humorous sort of commentary reaction channel, mm. and they were reacting to a Fine Brothers video uh, of them talking to millennials about Seinfeld.
1: Yeah.
0: And so they had these millennials watch Seinfeld who'd never seen Seinfeld before. And then they had them react to it. And like some of the episodes, they were, they included like the big one was the, the homosexual episode where like, Oh, there's not, not that there's anything wrong with that sort of thing. And yeah. you have, uh, all of these millennials basically, Oh, that, Ooh, Oh no, no, that's not okay. Sort of stuff. And it's yeah. like, this, this, this specific episode was recognized by Glad uh, uh, for you know being very progressive at, at the time that it was released. Yeah. but we're in such a different time, frame of mind that now we're not even objectively looking at it as this was a straight man who pretended to be homosexual with his friend. And the lady that he's trying to hook up, or trying to, you know, date, is was eavesdropping, and they actually thinks they're gay, but he he's not, and he wants to date her. Yeah. So he's, you know, obviously going to be, uh, you know, uh, lashing back against the idea that he is actually a homosexual. But the fact that they're also saying that there's nothing wrong with being gay which there absolutely isn't anything wrong with being homosexual is was at the time very progressive yeah. but we're in such a different time frame or my like sort of like social mindset yeah that what was seen as progressive uh you know 30 or 20 almost 30 years ago now is now almost like a regressive stuff like it's
1: yeah.
0: it's it it's kind of Amazing just how quickly stuff has started sort of shifting in our perspectives
1: Yeah, and I think it just brings it to the point that like in Whether it's like looking at old fiction or made on like made on Or based on true life, right like the context uh, Context is so important, right and and there's there's many layers of context so to say that something should be like verbatim exactly what happened it just, I don't think, makes sense because co- there's so many different contexts.
0: Yeah, uh, and that was sort of one of the things that came up with Bohemian Rhapsody as well. It's just, like, if you look at, you know, where we are in terms of, you know, our our understanding and our our sort of support of LGBTQ the LGBTQ community, uh, the fact that they didn't really delve into freddie mercury sexuality was one that didn't really go over too well with a lot of people um and i mean they showed him obviously having relationships with men and women but they never sort of defined freddie mercury in as bisexual or pansexual or whatever he was mm. they never uh they never or or homosexual uh they didn't they didn't, never define that and they just kind of glossed over it as you know here's a man who you know dressed how he wanted had sex with whoever he wanted uh and you know was a a fantastic performer and singer but they never really just you know put the label on him as to what he is Mm -hmm. or what he was uh and that was something that was kind of criticized uh as it was uh after he came out and into the awards season so Mm -hmm. um and that's something that I don't think we would have had an issue with uh, if the film had come out ten years ago, but
1: I mean, ten years that, ago they might have even had issue with just honestly portraying some of that stuff. Oh, exactly. Yeah. yeah, ten years ago we might have
0: had people not even seeing or boycotting the film because it depicted a man having sex with another man.
1: Yeah.
0: So uh, it's it's just one of those things where our we've had such a dra- like a a seismic shift in the way we view uh, certain uh, ideologies. That we need to at least present them within the context. We need to understand context mm-hmm. and and nuance and subtleties and everything, and just be willing to understand where something is coming from and the time the time that it came from. Yeah, and just understand that you know the The world of twenty years ago is not the, was not the world of ten years ago. It was not the, It's not the same world. as Five years ago, and it's not the same world of now. Yeah. Everything's changing so fast, and we're so quick to, you know, jump on something regardless of the context. Because what we view deem as incorrect now, even though it was deemed acceptable back then, uh, they people still think retribution needs to be had. Mm-hmm. So it's important that, I think it's definitely important to understand context. So um, that's why I like to read up about, uh, about films yeah. and stuff going in, because it provides that context. And I can, uh, or, and even at reading after,
1: it, provided, it provides the context so I can
0: better understand the film uh, and the story that it was trying to tell and the people and the characters involved.
1: Yeah, that makes sense.
0: So um I, I think that's a pretty good spot to wrap wrap it up for this episode. So I wanted to thank you for for joining me on this episode. And I wanna thank the listeners for tuning in to Motion Picture Commentary. Until next time.